Welcome to Politically Speaking, Scotland's flagship political podcast. My name is Mandy Rhodes. I'm the editor of Holyrood magazine. And joining me to discuss the week in politics is my award-winning writer, Liam Kirkcaldy. Join myself and Mandy, and the odd politician, of course, as we chew the political fat and spit it out on the pages of the forthcoming issue of Holyrood magazine. Um, I think we can overstate the importance of Boris Johnson. There's no question that... that I think the polling evidence is now pretty clear that Boris Johnson becoming Prime Minister has accelerated a trend. But the trend was there. And I don't think unionists should hide behind Boris Johnson as the excuse for what's going on just now. Because it's not that's not real. Well, yeah, a lot of the time, SNP politicians are on Twitter trying to encourage people to move to Scotland. You know, now this guy's done it. <laughs> he finds himself getting, like, highlighted by the SNP Westminster leader for daring to take a photograph. I suppose it makes you, well, it makes you glad that you're not Facebook friends with him, isn't it? If he's already patrolling Twitter, he'll go through your holiday photos. A very good friend who lost a husband who will spend Christmas on her own this year. We, we will all talk and we will try and meet on social media over the day. Sadly, there are going to be people that spend Christmas and times like this on their own. Okay, so first up this week, we have Good Week, Bad Week. That's a regular part of the show where we talk about the changing fortunes of political players in Scotland and beyond. Mandy, there's a theme for my Good Weeks recently, and they are increasingly Good Weeks. That's with the news that there is yet another effective vaccine that's been discovered against coronavirus. This one was developed by the uh, Oxford University and AstraZeneca uh, with a 90% effectiveness rate, although apparently that was actually done by accident due to a dosing error. Nonetheless, it is excellent news. Yeah, it's a very British vaccine, isn't it? That we find out by accident that if you take half a dose uh, first and then a second dose, that it'll have a 90% efficacy rate. But a 70% efficacy rate with one dose in people over 70. So that's very, very good news. Yeah, I mean, actually, 70% would still be very good news. But yeah, they apparently they... Um... They noticed that the expected side effects, I think there's a bit of like a kind of achy arm and stuff, were much milder than expected. So they went back to check why that was and realised they'd actually been giving people half the dose, which yeah. was good news. Well, and the main point about this vaccine is that it can be stored at a more normal fridge temperature. So um, the other vaccines with the 90% efficacy rate that were first discovered, they need to be kept at an incredibly cold temperature. So this this one is easier to store, easier to get around the country. And Boris had ordered a lot more of this one. So it's quite important. Mm, yeah. And actually, the, the other bit of good news on this is that it appears to be getting sold at cost price which means that uh, a lot of developing countries around the world are actually going to be able to access it, unlike other previously discovered vaccines. So that's also very good news. It is good news. I mean, I, you know, we've talked about this before, but uh, you would have thought during a global pandemic that actually we just produce vaccine for everybody's use at, at a cost that everybody can afford. But Well, sadly, go. I don't think that's how the market works. I know, I know. Um, and I think it is a sad reflection, given that this pandemic has shown so much inequity across the globe that we're still talking about profits when it comes to vaccine. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's right. And I suppose this one, yeah, it was it was funded differently, which does give them a different opportunity. Um, but on the other hand, you have to wonder if you're working at one of the other companies, whether you think that you're starting to look absolutely terrible. 
Yeah. Anyway, it's good news, so let's not put a complete downer oh, on sorry. it. Oh, <laughs> sorry. That's also one of the themes of my good weeks recently, is that I find ways to suddenly start attacking it, because 2020's yeah. gone on for too long, and I just don't believe in good news. Uh, well, it's funny, I think people are even finding conspiracies within the vaccine. You know, I mean, some of the things that um, people are deciding is involved in all of this, such as um, things embedded in a vaccine that would track where you're going and what you're doing. I mean, it's just bizarre. Yeah, well, I mean, there are a lot of things embedded in your mobile phone. <laughs> oh, don't start. <laughs> that currently track where you are and what yeah. you're doing. So I don't know why these people are suddenly so concerned over a life-saving yeah. vaccination. I know. Um, I'll be, I'll tell you, I'll be first in the queue. I want that vaccine, so I'll be going you, for it. Do you have a preference? Which is your favourite vaccine, Mandy? Uh, the most one? effective one. <laughs> so yeah, is that the 90 to 95 does make a difference for you then. That's... I, do you know what? I think it'll be interesting because will you actually know? Um, I mean, I don't know what hmm. the process will be, but I presume in however this is distributed, you may or may not know which hmm. one you're getting. Yeah, no, they haven't done one as a suppository. Oh, God. <laughs> Otherwise, you'd know. I can think of people like Trump that might want that. That's true. <laughs> or need yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, actually, it is interesting that none of them involve shotting bleach, isn't it? Yeah, I never really believed that bleach thing. Well, I'm still waiting for the effects. Although I understand that gargling mouthwash might actually help you counter the, the virus. Oh, really? That's yeah. <laughs> I think I'll wait for the vaccine, to be honest, Liam. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Well, that's that's my good week. My bad week is, oh. um, this is actually just from last night, my bad week is Ian Blackford. Yeah. Um, after it emerged that he's taken to patrolling the Highlands as a kind of uh, local vigilante, <laughs> or I should say, I say patrolling the Highlands, I mean patrolling Twitter. Yeah. So Ian Blackford, our new border control uh, officer, he <laughs> tweeted last night in response to um, a photographer, Ollie Taylor, who'd put up a pic, a beautiful picture. It's a really, really nice photo. I think we yeah. should actually mention that. It made yeah. me want to go there. Yeah, it was of a, the Aurora display up in the north of Scotland. Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, Ollie Taylor, quite innocently, I presume, put up this picture of the of the Aurora, and Ian Blackford retweeted it and said, "As you live in the south of England and travel to Scotland is only for permitted reasons, I'm sure there will be a valid reason as to why you are posting a photo from the north of Scotland last night." To be honest, there should have been some, uh, I think, commas within that tweet. But anyway, um, that. Uh, just provoked a storm of protest, quite rightly. I mean, what mm -hmm. on earth was the leader of the SNP group at Westminster acting like some unofficial guard for who and can come to Scotland or not? And also, you know, for my purposes, when I saw the tweet, I thought, God, you've got to be careful when you say these things. I mean, there have been so many politicians got into bother in the past for uh, questioning why, for instance, a politician wasn't in the chamber or why they weren't doing something particular and then discovered that there was some tragic reason, like they were at a yeah. funeral or whatever. And the point about Ollie Taylor, the photographer, was he actually moved to Scotland in September or in the summer to start taking photographs of our beautiful scenery, of which there is much in Ian Blackford's constituency. And all this has done is fed into a rhetoric of um, anti-Englishness. Uh, mm -hmm. Just dreadful. Well, yeah, a lot of the time, SNP politicians are on Twitter trying to encourage people to move to Scotland. You know, now this guy's done it. <laughs> he finds himself getting like highlighted by the SNP Westminster leader for daring to take a photograph. Yeah. I mean, I makes think... You... 
Yeah, well, it makes yeah. you glad that you're not Facebook friends with him, isn't it? Oh, God. If he's already patrolling Twitter, he'll go through your holiday photos. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, you know, it'll be a, a head-in-the-hands moment, presumably, for Nicola Sturgeon. This is on the eve of the SNP conference. It's like Boris Johnson's remarks of a week or so ago on the eve of their conference about devolution being a disaster. I just... Ian Blackford's a mature person who has worked and lived outside Scotland. The idea that he could then now be portrayed, portrayed by himself as some xenophobic, um, anti-English politician is just is just dreadful. Yeah, perhaps not the hero that we need. No, absolutely. Yeah, so that is actually that was my other bad week was Boris Johnson actually because this happened. Um since our last podcast was Boris Johnson coming out with um, some new comments on the failings of devolution. Yeah. So this was um, during a Zoom call with North of England um, Tory MPs, and he was reported as saying that he thought devolution had been a disaster and was basically Tony Blair's biggest mistake. Um, I mean, I think, as we've discussed, notwithstanding the fact that perhaps Iraq was uh, Tony Blair's biggest mistake, these comments did not go down well on the eve of the Scottish Conservative Party conference. That's right. Actually, Tony Blair said that freedom of information was his biggest mistake. He did. So to be perfectly honest, there's quite a choice. Um, But anyway, Boris Johnson obviously created problems for Douglas Ross, the new leader of the Scottish Conservatives. Um, There was a whole load of uh, reverse ferreting going on as they said that actually what Boris Johnson meant was that he just didn't like the way the nationalists were running the government in Scotland. Um, But interestingly, I've done an interview with Andy McIver, who used to be um, a Tory spin doctor. In fact, he was the strategist behind Murdo Fraser's bid to be the leader of the Scottish Conservatives back in 2011. Mm-hmm. And if you remember, you are old enough to remember this, Liam. Um, he Murdo Fraser's USP in that leadership bid was that he wanted the Scottish Conservative Party to break away from the UK Conservative Party and be a completely independent party representing Scotland, um, kind of centre-right party. Uh, and he failed in that bid. And I, th- I think Andy is just really interesting on what might have been, but also just more generally um, about the chances that Scottish Conservatives have in the next election. Um, mm. But Andy's days of being at an actual member of the Scottish Conservative Party are long gone. He is co-founder of Message Matters, which is a lobbying and PR consultancy. Um, But also people probably know Andy very much more for his real insightful political analysis and commentary. And we're going to listen to him now. So, Andy, what a start to a Scottish Conservative um, conference and the first one for Douglas Ross as leader, that basically you're again having to mop up the mess made by Boris Johnson, who called devolution a mess. And then we also saw Oliver Mundell resign from the front bench team. Yeah, there's a, there's a long history of... Um, I remember back in the day when I was involved, um, we used to always wait for the conference disaster story, which would always come just a couple of days before conference. Um, over the last few years, they seem to have managed not to have quite so many of them, but obviously Boris's intervention last week was quite a whopper, to be honest. Um, and, you know, <laughs> what the problem I think that, they, that Douglas has um, is that there's always something around the corner. Um, and it's not just Douglas has had that problem. This goes back to 
uh, to Jackson and, and Ruth and indeed way further back to um, when you and I were first around, Mandy, with uh, Annabelle and David McClitchie. Um, you know, there's always something uh, coming from London um, and it always causes problems, uh, you know, and so it's, it's not new, but this was, a, this was certainly a big one uh, with what Boris Johnson said. Do you think that, um, I mean, there clearly was this immediate reverse ferret saying, oh, you know, Boris didn't mean that devolution mm. is, is a mistake. It's really just the nationalists that are running the Scottish government. Do you think that worked in any way or it was just seen as disingenuous? No, I mean, it doesn't work. I, he, you see, when you make a statement like he did um, or like he's reported to have done, and I don't think they've denied, you know, the, the words that he used, um, you can't. You can't come back from that because that becomes a really big issue. You know, it's all over uh, the SNP's election literature, I'm quite certain. It's going to be all over uh, Twitter and memes and GIFs and so on. And so it doesn't, you know, the denial doesn't matter. It's not relevant. It only matters what you've said in the first place. As it happens, I actually, I was surprised when I heard what he'd said because I didn't think that he would actually think that. Um, and to be fair, I think there's a reasonable chance he doesn't think that. I think it might have been, you know, the, the famous loose language and colourful language of Boris Johnson. But none of that actually matters. It doesn't matter whether he does think it or not. All that matters is that he said it. Um, and, you know, this is not one of the ones that's going to go away quickly. You look back to things like the furlough issue a couple of weeks ago, um, which was, you know, slightly embarrassing again for the Scottish Tories. And you can see how that just would disappear through time. This one, I don't think so. I think this hangs around for a very long period of time because it really gets to the very heart of what has been the Tory problem for decades, which is the perceived anti-Scottishness. And, you know, being against devolution is right in that basket. And I, I don't think this is going away, this problem now. It's it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, we could probably talk about Boris Johnson for some time, but the idea that a prime minister does just have a loose tongue, that he mm. doesn't sometimes think, he just says things to the room and yeah. perhaps not realising that other people might listen or pass mm. it on. Yeah, well, that's a bit, you know, that's what we have. It's... Um, it's almost, it would be more, uh, it would be easier in a different era when not everything was uh, constantly reported all the time. You know, you could probably have a telephone call with a handful of uh, MPs and, and be pretty assured that it was never going to get out. But now it's effective, you know, it's like being live streamed almost. You know, you can't, you just can't say anything anymore. So Boris's approach is, um, it can be really, you know, it can work. Let's not you know, we should be clear about the fact that there are some advantages to it, but, the, you know, the disadvantages are that you get a situation like this where he says something and he's probably playing to the room a little bit, you know. Uh, I can understand why North of England um, MPs would be uh, jealous, I suppose, of devolution, uh, and, um, you know, because I don't think devolution has served the North of England very well at all. Um, so, uh, you know, to the way he might have been playing to the room, but but you just can't in, in the modern era, you can't do it, because somebody somewhere is going to reproduce your comments and it's just going to cause you problems. And actually, that's the other interesting bit. He may have been playing the room and thinking that he knew the room. Somebody in that room let that information come out. Mm, well, that is the interesting thing, of course. Um, I was having this conversation with somebody in the government in London uh, the other day and uh, there's not been a lot of focus on that in terms of who leaked this because somebody did and somebody did it very quickly and very deliberately and... You know, that's another issue, which is that, you know, he doesn't have his troubles to seek, even amongst um, his red wall 
MPs who in any other time and place would be fiercely loyal to the person who effectively got them elected. Um, and they're not. Um, so it's quite curious in that way. Yeah, that's an interesting one. The other thing that, as you say, the SNP will be getting their campaign posters printed up as we speak. It reminded me, I guess, a little bit of the George Robertson that devolution would kill nationalism stone dead. Yeah. Um, You know, that has just continued ad infinitum, what, 25, 30 years later? Yeah, and, you know, I think there's a couple of really big issues come from what he said. One is what appears to me... Um, to afflict quite a lot of people in the UK government, which is an inability to distinguish between the concept of devolution and the practice of devolution. Um, It's pretty valid to question what difference devolution has made on the ground to people in Scotland. Now, you could have a completely separate podcast than that, and there'd be arguments both ways and so on and so on. But, um, you know, there are... Scotland has a lot of problems, Um, education, in my view, being in schools, being the absolute uh, top of that tree. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that the the concept of devolution and the institution of the Scottish Parliament is at fault. Um, You know, actually, those are two completely different things. And I think in London, they're having trouble separating them. And that, I think, comes to the much bigger issue, which is that, you know, when I saw what he'd said there, and when you think about what might happen after May, because I think after May, you're going to have a situation where the SNP uh, either get a majority by themselves, which I think is probably at this point 50-50, or certainly the pro-independence parties um, have a majority between them, which I think is all, you know, 90-10, to be honest with you. Um, and you're then going to have a situation where Labour and the Lib Dems, I think, will be much more considerate about what they then do. I would be very surprised if Labour and the Lib Dems did not immediately pivot towards supporting some sort of referendum. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think they will move towards a federalist position. Now, if they do that, and if the sort of belligerent um, section of the Tory party just continues to say no, it then starts to look a lot like the 90s again, in my view. It looks a lot like you have, you know, three parties or every other party which wants to advance in some way with a decentralization agenda and i appreciate you know some of that is is independence and that's obviously the breakup of the uk Uh, others would want to advance in a federalist way to keep the uk together but you have this one party which just wants to say no you have this one party which wants to say enough is enough line in the sand and so on so on and it just looks very much like the 90s then when the tories are the quote-unquote anti-scottish party and everybody else has got ideas for how to take it forward so i thought it had real echoes of that for the first time in a while actually it's interesting isn't it because i think um, james mitchell was on the podcast recently and he was talking about how still the snp have managed to portray themselves as the party that stands up and acts for scotland and if you have a tory party that doesn't that actually criticizes devolution even if it was incorrect as you say that what he's doing is criticizing the snp but they, they frequently do this. They get the fact that um, Scotland has always had an independent justice system or an yeah. education system or a health system. Um, and they just look increasingly backward. This all goes back, in my view, and, you know, this is hindsight. When the, when the Parliament, I was 20 years old when Parliament first sat. Um, and actually, you know, looking back on that, the Unionist parties made a terrible mistake right at the very start. 
by adopting, by effectively putting themselves into the parliament and putting the word Scottish in front of their name. Um, what that has done with hindsight is allowed the SNP to portray the kind of three versus one agenda where the SNP is the only Scottish party um, and the unionist parties are all effectively branch offices of English parties. Um, you know, I used to think it was just a Tory problem, but it's actually not. It does affect the other parties as well. Um, it affects their ability to appear to be genuinely Scottish. So the whole standing up for Scotland agenda is very difficult. You know, I think in hindsight, um, everybody would have got on an awful lot better if our devolved parliament was set up in the same way as, for example, the, the provincial parliaments and assemblies in Canada. Uh -huh. So right across Canada, you have you might have some parties that are called the Liberal Party or the Conservative Party in provincial parliaments, but they actually have no relationship to the federal parties in Ottawa. Um, and in Quebec, which is probably the best example, you have three or four parties which have no relationship at all to any of the federal parties in the Canadian Parliament. Um, and some of them are separatist or sovereignist parties, as they call them. Um, some of them are pro-Canada parties, but they are all Quebec-only parties. And what that has meant is that the Parti Québécois, which is the primary sovereignist or independence party, have had no ability to say to the other parties who are pro-Canada, you're not standing up for Quebec, you don't have Quebec's best interests at heart. They've not been able to do it because those parties have been Quebec-only parties. And I think with hindsight, the tying of the party system to a Westminster party system has been the biggest mistake that the unionists have made in devolution. I think that is essentially what has caused all the problems that unionism has right now. I mean, the issue is, though, we are where we are, and yeah. that is how it is. And, I mean, for you, given um, your involvement with Maddo Fraser yeah. in 2011, um, talking about creating a completely new party, um, it must uh, there must be some kind of hollow victory in all of this for you. Well, not really. But, I mean, you know, my, I'm not party political anymore. I mean, I've not been a member of the Tory party for 13 years. So I... I'm really just interested in trying to create a better discourse um, and, you know, a, a, a better country for my kids to grow up in, to be honest. I don't think we can do that the way we're doing things just now. I just don't think we can. Um, we are not going to stop talking about constitutional issues until we have resolved the question. And I think we need a second independence referendum to do that. And we can, I guess we'll come back to that. But there are really big issues that we need to talk about in this country. I mentioned education earlier on. We have to have a very substantial conversation about what's going on in our schools. I've got four kids in state schools. I know what's going on and it's not pretty. Um, and we've got to talk about that. And we've got to talk about the NHS and whether it can cope the way that it is structured with um, you know, what might be coming in terms of demographics and, and pandemics, of course, and other things. You, know, there's, you could list a whole number of things, our transport and broadband infrastructure. You could list things all day long. The difficulty is we have the ability and we have the people and we have the talent to do something about all of those things, but we don't talk about them. We have no bandwidth to talk about them because all we talk about is independence. And so my view is that we need to try to create the conditions to finish that conversation one way or another, whether it is as a, you know whether it results in federalism or independence or a unitary state as some in the Tory party in London seem to now want. Whatever it results in, we need to end the conversation so that we can actually have a real conversation 
about the real things that are going on. So that's that's what drives me. I, I don't take any, you know, I, I know I was right 10 years ago. I know I was right 15 years ago when I first suggested that there had to be a different party. But I don't really take any victory from kind of being proven right. I just wish it would happen. Um, and then we could actually move on and, and, and make things better. I mean, I'm slightly older than you, Auntie, and probably have a bit more skin in the game as well going forward, but I, I going back, but I just guess the constitutional question has existed all my adult life. And uh, do you do you actually think that once we even got to a point of a referendum mm -hmm. and say the yes side won and independence becomes a possibility, do you yeah. think we would stop talking about the constitution? Do you, or do you think we would actually start focusing on things that need to happen in Scotland? No, I, I do think we can get to a point where we stop talking about it. I mean, there will always be people somewhere in quiet corners who will talk about it. So there's always going to be a certain, you know, if, if the next referendum produced another no vote, whether that was, you know, resulting in federalism or whatever, if the next referendum produced another no vote, there would still be a portion of the population who would advocate independence, right? It wouldn't, it wouldn't go away completely, mm -hmm. but it would lose its centrality, I would think. I, mean, I, th I really think it would lose its centrality. I think it would become more of a fringe issue if we did it again, because I think the vast majority of people who remember are not political animals, you know, you take 70 or 80% of the people in the population who just want to get on with their lives. They're not political animals like us. They don't live and breathe this stuff. And I think those are the people who would say, okay, enough's enough. We're not doing this again. We've done it twice. This is enough now. Um, and I, I really think they would, you know, through their voting patterns would demand that we move on. If of course there was a yes vote, you know, arguably, that is actually a quicker way to move on because that is an answer to the question. You, know, you can't unanswer that question. Um, so, you know, if you get a yes vote, uh, I actually think that uh, the vast majority of no voters would say, well, if that's what it is, that's what it is. Uh, and there'd be a period of angst as there is right now for leaving the EU. But ultimately, as there will be for leaving the EU in the fullness of time when it's actually done and the agreements are made and, and you know, people will move on and they'll just try and make the best of it. And I, I think that's what would happen in that circumstance as well. So I think either way, after NDRF2, I really do believe um, there is a route to leaving this issue behind. Just on them, I mean, it would it would also answer the question about the independence of the other parties because presumably other parties would spring up as well, um, but there'd be no question of being shackled to, if you like, um, a UK party. But answer me this then on the question of education and how you feel about that. Why do the SNP repeatedly get voted back into office? Well, because the voters don't think there's a reasonable alternative. I mean, you know, I, I think it gets back to uh, the issue that I discussed before about the way the parties are structured. You know, you, it's, it is, I just don't think that the next governing party of Scotland actually exists yet. I just don't think it exists. Um, if you look at the credible alternatives, there is no, there's really no route map as far as I can tell um, in anything like the near future for any of the three unionist parties to form the government of Scotland. I just don't see how it could possibly happen. Um, you, you might have a situation where if Labour had some sort of um, uh, resurgence, and actually I, I, I think there's a potential for that um, if they do the right things, 
then the Tories would would have some sort of confidence and supply and allow them to, to form the government. But I, I mean, I think that would all be based on a very unionist uh, platform, which ha- you know presents its own difficulties. I just think you have a, a situation where none of the, the UK parties are simply seen as being attractive enough to vote for. There's too much baggage with all of them uh, for people to vote for them. And I, I think you have this situation where the SNP, rightly or wrongly, are seen as the Scottish party and they have um, you know, they, they, they have the results now uh, to prove that. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that you, when you don't have a credible alternative to vote for, then you become complacent uh, and you don't have to, you don't have to be that good to keep getting voted in. Do you, do you think then that people, when they go to the ballot in May, mm. are thinking, if I vote for the Tories in Scotland, I'm voting for Boris Johnson? Every single time that people have gone to the ballot box, potentially with the exception of 2016, because it was just post-referendum, but pretty much every time uh, people have gone to the ballot box in a Scottish election for Holyrood, when they see the word Conservative, the first thing that comes into their head is whoever's in charge of Westminster. That's just what happens. Um, And, you know, I know the Scottish Tories don't like that. I know they don't like hearing that. Um, and I know they would wish that wasn't the case, but it is the case. And we have to operate in the real world here. When people head to the ballot box on May the 6th next year, they will see the word Conservative and they will not think Douglas Ross. They will not in their heads, when they close their eyes, see Douglas Ross. They will close their eyes with their pencil in their hand and they will see Boris Johnson. That is life for Tories in Scotland. That's what it is. And there isn't anything they can do about that. So if you have a situation where, um, for whatever reason, the tide is broadly in your favour, um, as it was because they were, you know, they were riding the wave of unionism to keep the oceans examples uh, uh, going on, uh, you know, they they were able to do well in 2016, and they were people were able to think, well, that's the unionist party. They're the ones standing up for the union. It's Ruth Davidson, and, and, and that's great. I'll vote for them. So there was that sort of uh, what I think is probably an exception to the rule. But once that subsides, you're just left with the same old stuff you were always left with, which is a Tory party, which is seen as being uh, run by whoever's in charge in London. Um, and that's truer, more than it ever has been before right now, in my view. So, so was Ruth's contribution overplayed then? Um, no, I, I think, look, I think Ruth is really, really talented. I thought she was um, a perfect person to be in the job at that time. I don't, so I don't think that Ruth's own contribution is overplayed. Um, I think what's overplayed is how Ruth made that contribution. So people will often say that Ruth detoxified the Tories. I think that's a complete misreading of the situation. I think what Ruth did is she she brilliantly exploited unionism. So if you look at the 2016 election, you know, dig out an election leaflet from 2016, you won't see the word conservative anywhere. Anywhere. Uh, you'll see Ruth Davidson all over them. Um, but you'll struggle to see the word conservative. You'll see the word unionist, but you'll struggle to see the word conservative. And that's not an accident. That's because Ruth was smart enough to know that the Tory brand isn't what was resurrected after the referendum. What was resurrected was unionism. Unionism became um, popular again because people who voted no saw that as being the way to stop an independent Scotland and they saw her as being in charge of that. 
Um, and that is why she did so well in 2016 in Hollywood and 2017 in Westminster. So it's not her role that's overplayed, but I think what's overplayed is the perception that she somehow detoxified the Tory party. She didn't, and she didn't even try to, I have to say, she didn't try to detoxify the Tory party. She simply exploited unionism, exploited the weakness of Labour, and put herself in charge of unionism and got the rewards. So can Douglas Ross do anything, do you think, to change what might happen in May? Um, uh, it's probably unfair to say that he can't do anything at all. Um, elements remain within his control, but a bad result in May will not be his fault. Um, and I thought it was dangerous for, you know, when he came in, Quite a lot of his supporters um, were, were briefing the media to suggest that everything would be fine now um, because Jackson was gone and Douglas was in and that would make everything okay. And I read that and I thought, what are you doing? I don't understand why you're doing that because it's not true. Um, you know, the large part of the Tory result in May will be completely out with the control of anybody who's leader of the, of the party in Scotland. What Douglas can do at the margins is what he is doing right now which is picking fights with Westminster. I mean, that's what he's doing. That, that is basically the strategy. Um, pick fights, make it, make it uh, try to encourage the perception that the best way to stand up for Scotland is to have Scottish Tories badgering the UK government rather than SNP badgering the UK government because they've got a better chance of getting a result. So you saw that with the furlough discussion a couple of weeks ago. And, uh, and although that's a, that is a bad example because it didn't end up going very well for them. There are other areas where he could do that. Fisheries might be an excellent example coming up over the next couple of months. So there are some things that Douglas could do to, to, to try to make it look as though um, Scotland is best served by having a party which can influence the UK government. So that sort of fight picking um, is, you know, is a beneficial thing to do. He's also right to try to talk about public services and various other things that are happening in Scotland as much as possible as well. So, you know, I don't think he's doing the wrong thing. I just think there's not that much that he can actually do about the result in May. It is largely out with his control. I mean, interestingly, I think it was um, John Curtis, when he was on the podcast, was talking about that. And he said the best thing that any Tory leader in Scotland could do is encourage the voters to vote Labour. Um, mm. and, and, and conversely, that may help um, keep the SNP away from a majority. Um, well, I think his feeling was that the, the, the Scottish Conservatives have picked up all the votes that they can. So on that latter point, I tend to agree with John Curtis, I, I, you know, I, I think that the Tories since 2014 have really um, been to the well a number of times to get these unionist votes. Um, and I suspect that well is now dry. Um, I think the unionists who are left, who don't vote Tory, hate the Tories and would never vote for them. I don't think there's a lot of what you might call kind of wavering, centrist, Blairite type Labour voters who... Uh, just need one more push to convince them to vote Tory because the Tories are the uh, the best protectors of the union. I, I I just think that vote has been exhausted. I think the well is dry, um, and it's a case of holding on to as many of them as you possibly can in May. Now, what John says about Labour voters is correct in that if Labour don't do well, um, the unionists can't do well. 
because uh, you know there there are so many seats in which the Tories remain uncompetitive that if Labour don't do well in those areas, then uh, the votes and the seats will go to the SNP instead. They're not going to come to the Tories. So uh, it's certainly true to say that a poor Labour performance um, will increase the chances quite markedly of an SNP majority. And do you think, I'm, I'm just thinking about things that you were saying as um, about the election in May and the constitutional debate and the idea that no other party is looking like a party of government. I mean, mm. are we running out of time that basically a second independence referendum is inevitable and so is a yes vote? Well, I... I think those are different. Um, I think those are different. So I think uh, a second independence referendum at this point is probably. I mean, I don't. I never like using the words inevitable because it can make you look pretty silly afterwards. But um, <laughs> I, I, I think a second referendum is close to inevitable. I think it's highly likely to happen, um, and I also think it's likely the UK government will allow it to happen on <laughs> on some level. So yes, I think a second independence referendum is what well, a I think is desirable. Actually, I think we need to have one to, to to get this out of the way, as I said earlier on. But I also think it's highly likely. I'm not so sure the same is true for a yes vote in that referendum. Um, and in fact, you know, the ironic thing is that I think unionists are generally in charge, uh, more so than nationalists, of how that referendum would go. Um, and I'm not knocking. Nationalists. I mean, I work with, a, you know, as a lobbyist, I work with a lot of people in the Scottish government. I work with a lot of SNP politicians, and there's a lot of extremely talented people there, um, and they have brilliantly dealt with the electoral mathematics of the last, you know, fifteen years, and they've done extremely well. However, I think it remains the case that the the increase in yes sentiment over, well, really since the gradual increase since 2014, which has become a faster increase over the last six months. I think that is in large part due to a push factor of unionists pushing people towards nationalism rather than it has been a pull factor of nationalists pulling people towards it. I don't think it's a particularly positive decision that people are making to say, I'm actually going to go, I'm going to switch from no to yes. I think in the majority of cases, it's a negative decision. I think they're saying, I'm going to switch from no to yes because I just hate what I'm seeing. From unionists, I don't. There's nothing about it that's appealing to me. They don't seem to be trying to keep me, so I'm just going to try something else. I think that, and I think because of that, I think there's a lot that unionists could do. I mean, ultimately, if there's an NPRF two, and there's a yes vote, I think that unionists then, those who've been in charge over the last several years, need to look in the mirror. And they will understand, they should understand, that they are responsible for that. It's not an inevitability that people are going to vote yes. And as I say, I don't think that nationalism is making that an inevitability. I don't think nationalism is pulling people towards it. I think that people are, are rebelling against you know, the complete lack of message, the complete lack of strategy, the complete lack of anything coming from the unionist community. I guess um, for you and I, who look at these things a bit more closely, there's a frustration that people may be moving towards the idea of independence or away from unionism simply because of Boris Johnson. They look at him and as Scots perhaps don't see themselves reflected back. But he's a prime minister. He's there for a temporary period of time. Mm. And yet independence would be a permanent decision. 
So how how do we how do you move away from that? Does it need just a change at the top? Um, I think we can overstate the importance of Boris Johnson. There's no question that that I think the polling evidence is now pretty clear that Boris Johnson becoming prime minister has accelerated a trend, but the trend was there, and I don't think unionists should hide behind. Boris Johnson as the excuse for what's going on just now, because it's not that's not real. Um, I think it has accelerated it, but the trend was pretty clear. And whether it had been Boris Johnson or somebody else being Prime Minister, we have been moving in this direction with an increase in yes sentiment um, of no voters switching to yes. Uh, and that was happening before he became Prime Minister. And it will it would be happening whether it was somebody else in charge or whether you know Jeremy Hunt had won. It would still be happening. It might be happening slower, but it would still be happening. So what unionists need to do is address the core issues, not worry too much about the personality involved and try to address the core issues. In fact, Boris Johnson has the ability, you know, if you look at the pre-Prime Minister Boris Johnson, think back to when he was Mayor of London, yeah. he, he remains somebody with the ability to sell a new type of unionism where he embraces devolution and says, okay, look, this is the way it's going to be going anyway. And so we need to try to, which I think Keir Sarmer will do, by the way. Um, this is the way that things are going. People, you know, we, we don't want a unitary state. It's anachronistic. People want power closer to them. Um, and that's just the new type of UK that we're going to have. He could actually sell that message, I think. I think he still could. I know that we're in an acutely difficult time where he's unpopular. Um, but there's an awful lot of other things going on just now with COVID and so on that have contributed to that. I remain of the view that he has the ability to sell a different type of union, not just in Scotland, but throughout the whole of the UK. Um, and ultimately, I think that's what needs to happen if the UK is going to continue. It has to be something different. Now, I'm not saying he's the best person to sell that message. In fact, in many ways, I think if Keir Starmer was Prime Minister it would probably increase the chances of the UK staying together. Um, but nonetheless, I, I don't think that, I think unionists would be unwise to hide behind Boris Johnson and use him as an excuse for why this is happening. So taking that on board, if we were to look at um, the earliest possible moment for a second independence referendum, which realistically could be at the end of next year, We've still to come to the end of the um, transition period with the EU. So yeah. that'll happen at the end of January. Um, then we're into the May election. Do you really feel that then there's a period of time where people could be persuaded? Because I'm presuming you're thinking there would have to be a third option on a ballot paper for independence, not just yes, no, but also um, Devo Max or federalism. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 there are a couple of ways to do it, and um, you could have a you could have a two option referendum where one option is federalism and one option is independence, where you effectively take a decision the status quo is dead and it's no longer an option, or as you say, you could have a, a three question referendum, probably a two more likely a two part referendum, probably where you say yes, no, uh, and if you choose no. You then have the further option, a little bit like 97, 
you then have the further option of saying, you know, federalism or, or states hold. So I think there are a couple of ways to, structurally, there are a couple of ways to do it. The question of is there time is a really interesting question, and I, I just don't actually know the answer to that, to be honest. Um, uh, it depends when the referendum would be. I mean, I don't think it's going to be the end of next year. I think that is logistically almost impossible for that to happen, to be honest. But I could see it being 2022. Um, and, you know, that would be something which I would expect the UK government would have to discuss themselves to say, well, look, if we're, you know, do A, do, are we going to try to do something different, which might actually encourage people to vote, uh, to not vote for independence? Um, if so, what's that going to look like and how much time are we going to give that to, to bed in? Um, there's a whole lot of issues in there. Um, and, uh, you know, I think you would need a runway of a good... 12 to 18 months to be confident that you could get that message home. And then, Andy, going back to the question of the, the parties and how they're arranged and, and really getting back to your 2011 issue, mm -hmm. even if you get to a point of a federal um, process in Scotland, yeah. what do the parties need to do to then continue to be semi-autonomous of the UK parties and still be seen as standing up for Scotland? Well, I think there uh, are, are two relatively quick and easy moves that could be done. And let's remember the backdrop to this, right? The backdrop to this is that Scotland is the only country in Europe which has no credible chance of having a centre-right government. So we talk a lot about Scandinavian countries in particular, and we talk about them being left-wing countries and so on and so on. It's a lot of nonsense. You know, all the countries in Scandinavia are run by the centre-right, at least as often as they're run by the centre-left. So and New are, Zealand, it has to be said. Absolutely. I mean, there, there, is, there is no other example of a rich, democratic country like Scotland having such a weak centre-right. There's no other example of it. And so what we have to say to ourselves is why... Is that so? You know, for a reconstruction afterwards, I think there's two really easy things that could be done. One is that, in my view, Labour and the Lib Dems should merge. Um, there is very little, you know, if you look at, I don't know, Alex Cole Hamilton and Daniel Johnson, what's different about those guys? Hmm. Really? I mean, what's different? You know, all that separates them is a constituency boundary. There's very little else that's different about those two. Um, and I see, I would see a lot of advantages, and I, I think they should be considering it, frankly, right now, um, to look at those two parties and say, well, look, you know, we now share a federalist agenda because it's now the official policy of both parties. We're effectively both social democratic parties again, with Corbyn having gone and Starmer being in charge. Uh, you know, we're effectively, okay, you can have the Richard Leonard argument, but we're talking about post-election here. We're effectively both social democratic parties. Why don't we come together? Look at all the seats around the country that we could do well in if we simply combine. So you have that. And then you have the Scottish Tories, who actually should be in quite an enviable position because they're the only party of the centre-right in a country which is just as able to vote for a centre-right party as any other country in Europe. I don't believe that our population is uniquely left-wing, where every other, literally every other country in Europe has a population which is basically split down the middle in ideology. And most people, of course, are relatively centrist and will flip between two reasonable parties. So I don't believe that we don't have the conditions to create what I would call a normal 
uh, European democratic structure. I just think we do. And what holds us back is we just lack radicalism in this country. Other countries do it all the time. I mentioned Canada earlier on. 20 years ago, Stephen Harper left the Conservative Party, started his own party, and he's since been a three-term prime minister. You know, these things do happen in other countries. Um, well, Emmanuel, Macron, Emmanuel Macron's party didn't exist 10 years yeah. ago, and, and you know now he's president of France. So we, we can do these things if we have a little bit of will. That's all that's required. I I think there's a whole other uh, hour to be done, if you like, on um, why in Scotland we have one nationalist party, mm. uh, which is a huge a broad church, which takes in people from left, right and centre. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's a whole other conversation, isn't it? But Yeah, it's, part, it's partly related to the conversation that we've had, because the reason for that is that constitutionalism is more important than everything else. So it doesn't matter how you want to, say, structure state-funded healthcare. What matters is the constitution. So even if you have somebody who you disagree with about the structure of state-funded healthcare, as long as you agree with them on constitutional matters, then that overrides. I mean, I think that's the short answer as to why we have that dominance. Can you, I mean, I'm conscious of how long we, we've been talking about this, but when you think about how the debate has gone over the last 10, 15 years, Andy, mm. do you worry about the the level of debate or lack of debate that, that everything has become so binary? Yeah, I do. Uh, I mean, you know, the truth is I, I couldn't honestly say that I'm in any way proud of Scottish politics. I'm really not. You know, I... I, I I know a lot of the people involved on all sides. Um, I've got friends on all sides. And there are a lot of really smart people. But as a nation, we don't get the best out of them. We really don't. Um, because the level of debate is low. Um, and, uh, and it's petty. Uh, and to a degree, you know, a lot of politics is like that all around the world. But I think we suffer more from it here. Because we're scarred by what's going on. You know, we're really scarred by this debate, I think. Um, uh, and it puts people in a box. You don't get to be... You know, I couldn't be a politician because you could not possibly uh, succeed in politics with the views that I have. You can't have a nuanced view. You have to be in a box um, or you don't get anywhere. And I, I think we, we drive people towards that by the way that we have our debates. I think it's interesting, isn't it? There's a kind of paradox that we seem to have got so much more sophisticated about our politics. We seem to know so much more than everybody else about the process. And yet debate around every issue that you can think of does come down to, well, if you're not with me, you're against me. Yeah. And, um, yeah. and, and people just argue. I mean, just in terms of reflecting back... Do you sit and indulge in your quieter moments of what could have been had Murdo won that leadership battle in 2011? Um, I don't tend to. I'm not the sort of person who looks back, really, to be honest. Uh, you know, when something's done, it's done. Um, what I would say is that um, Murdo's plan went as far as it could go at that point. So it was more a German model, a sort of CDU-CSU model, where the Scottish party would uh, be separate 
but it would take the whip of the Conservative Party at Westminster. So with hindsight, I think it would have helped to a degree, but I don't think it actually would have been the final solution. Um, because I think it would have been too easy for his opponents to simply say, you know, new nameplate, same door, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, with hindsight, I think it needed a more, needs, still needs more than ever, actually, a more radical change, whereby you would, for example, have uh, the Conservative Party would stand in Scotland for Westminster, but it would not stand at Holyrood. It would just would cease to be a party which organised for a Holyrood election. Um, I th- so with hindsight, I think that would be the only way to do it. Um, otherwise, I don't think the change is substantial enough. I do also reflect on what would have happened, you know, with the referendum, um, if there had been a separate party, because one of the arguments you'll remember uh, that was used by Murdo's opponents at the time was, what sort of a message does it send if you break up the party at the same time as you want to advocate not breaking up uh, the UK? Um, And I think that's one we'll probably never know the answer to, actually. Um, But I do feel it is, I feel it's something of a sign of what I think is a bit of a lack of maturity in the way that we do our politics. Um, And it's perhaps the UK is just not able to cope with not being a unitary state. Because, you know, we we talk about separate parties as though, um, you know, having a different party in Holyrood in itself is a sign of the end of the union. And, you know, you don't hear that in Canada or America or Australia or any of the other, you know, Anglo-Saxon countries that employ uh, significantly more decentralised structures. We, they just don't seem to get themselves caught up in that pretty puerile level of debate. We just don't seem to be able to cope with that here. It's always been curious to me, but we just we can't cope with it. You know, if I had to say one word that is the problem with unionism in Scotland, it's emotional. Unionists are far too emotional. Um, they can't see beyond our precious union and once in a generation and all that sort of thing. And they are unable to make clinical judgments about how to actually win. And that's a big difference here between unionists and nationalists. Nationalists, and the SNP in particular, they make clinical judgments because they know it will help them win. You know, it is not, nas- it's not natural territory for a nationalist to want the queen as head of state or the pound as your currency. It's not national territory for, uh, natural territory for a lot of nationalists to want to be in NATO. But the SNP have engineered and done these things and they have made those clinical decisions because they know it will help them win. Unionists can't do it. They're too emotional. It's interesting because at the same time, the support for the nationalists will be almost entirely based on emotion. Uh, Yeah, but the decision makers aren't. Yeah. Your supporters can be, that's fine. In fact, that can be quite useful because it energises them. But the cold, hard decisions made by nationalist leaders over many years have helped to put them in an electable position. And those decisions were clinical decisions. They were not emotional decisions. They were clinical decisions. They weren't done while waving a saltire or going on a march. They were done coldly and calculatedly because they knew it would help them win. And unionists don't make decisions like that. They're not able to do it. 
Do you think there's anything that could derail the SNP getting a majority in May? Um, it would be foolish to say no, because you just never know what's going to happen. I mean, there could be some sort of absolute blockbuster that comes out and creates those circumstances, but I don't see what it's going to be. I don't see it being that the Alex Salmon stuff. Um, you know, I think we're far enough down the line with that to to know that whilst it's deeply uncomfortable for those involved, you know, you can see in the polls it's not that big an issue to the real people. They're not that bothered about it. If they were that bothered about it, they would have expressed that in opinion polls, and they're not doing so. In fact, they're going the other way. Mm-hmm. So I find it difficult. Uh, you know, I know a lot of unionists have uh, are have been hoping and praying for the silver bullet um, that we suddenly turn everything around. I, I don't see where it's coming from. I really don't. And I guess finally, Andy, I mean, on a mature basis, do you think um, there's any chance that we'll see Douglas Ross as First Minister of Scotland? Um, I could see Douglas Ross, yeah, I think you could see Douglas Ross as First Minister of Scotland, but he'll not be for the Conservative Party. Oh, that's interesting. (laughs) How would that happen? Uh, Look, I think that, um, you know, the SNP will clearly be in Butte House until at least 2026. Um, And probably until 2031 but certainly until 2026. After that, if people make sensible decisions, then there's no limits to what they can do. I go back to the Stephen Harper example. If you had asked somebody in Canada 25 years ago when Stephen Harper was an MP for the Progressive Conservatives, is Stephen Harper going to be Prime Minister? Well, he wasn't going to be Prime Minister for that party, but he was Prime Minister one day. Mm, Interesting. Andy, thanks very much for that. Okay, so it's time for the final part of the show. That is the rant of the week, or it was historically. It's changed a little bit now. Not always something bothering Mandy. Mandy, is there any issues that have been the bee in your bonnet this week? I love the idea that it's historically been the rant of the week when we probably have had about three rants in the last few months. It feels Um, like this podcast has been, you know, I mean, I'd say it's historically. We've been doing it for about six months. Have we? God, time's extraordinary. I don't know. I mean, when did lockdown start? Is it been a year? 1918 or something. I've lived Um, most of my life in lockdown as far as I remember. Oh, God. Well, and I guess that's the whole point of what we're going to talk about now. I mean, the news of a vaccine, which is great, and we've talked about that at the top of the show, but now, right now, when that... um, escape, if you like, from this hell that we've been living in is clear. Everyone's getting irrated about Christmas. Christmas. So oh, the idea <laughs> that we put, put aside all the good work that we've done and all the hardship that we've gone through and being away from loved ones, etc., to spend Christmas with them, to then raise the risk again of us catching this virus when a vaccine is in clear sight. It's just madness. Mm. And I think politically, the politicians should be playing down the idea that we should all be together at Christmas. I mean, God, we all argue at Christmas anyway. I'll have a bit too much to drink and um, then spend the rest of the year apologising. Maybe that's just my Christmas. I don't know. Yeah, it does sound like you're trying to get out of something here. (laughs) 
Listen, I'd love to have the normal Christmas where my whole family come together, but there's 14 or so of us when we do that. And with an 83-year-old mum, I mean, she's she's absolutely dead against it. She does not want to, us to be together at Christmas. Oh, that's good. That makes it a lot easier, though, doesn't it? Yeah. That would be people's worry is that there's a member of their family who desperately wants it. Yeah, well, I don't know. As a daughter, it feels quite, I'm, I'm conflicted by this. I, mm. You know, the idea that she doesn't want to spend Christmas with us. But I think I completely get her point. I've got a son who's coming back from London um, and he's flying back. Uh, my sister's got three children in their 20s. So they're all in separate households. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's there's other um, sisters and brothers around. I think we all have to be really sensible. And we've been sensible for eight months, nine months. I don't see the point in ruining it now. Um, yeah, I mean, from a lot of what I've seen, the message appears to be, this is maybe more aimed at Boris Johnson than anything else, but the message is basically you can meet up at Christmas, but you probably shouldn't because it's incredibly dangerous. Well, you know, I like think it's the message quite is confusing. you can... Yeah, well, meet up at Christmas, but then probably you add um, a further five days of concern for every time, for every day you spend with family. I mean, I I just think we should actually be saying it's too dangerous. Don't do it. Um, let's let's celebrate Christmas at some other point in the year or, or not. I mean, so many people don't even celebrate Christmas, Liam. Well, yeah, and, I mean, it makes me feel really sorry for anyone who's already missed a major religious yeah, festival, you know. Yeah. Well, and is, lots have. Uh-huh. And, and I just feel we need to be saying, let's have a family or a get together at some point later in the year when it's safe and um, when we can all celebrate the fact that we've got through this. Let's remember the people that haven't got through this and let's not, um, I don't know, in their memory, let's perhaps be saying, let's be sensible. Well, what do you think would happen if, if the message from Nicola Sturgeon was basically... I'm aware that there are a small number of people who desperately do need to see people at Christmas. You know, it is, it is different for different people. Everyone's in a different circumstance. So basically the guidance is if you can possibly avoid it, don't. But if you feel you need to, you can. I mean, what would happen? Would that lead to widespread anarchy? Well, you see, I think she she was basically saying that yesterday during her briefing. I mean, she talked about her own family. She was asked what she would do. And she said she sketched a, a family Christmas, which sounded very much like my own, where everybody gets together at her house and that won't be happening this year. Mm. Um, I mean, I you know, I, I've seen a lot of chat, particularly on social media, where people are then being quite critical of people expressing the view that I'm expressing and they're sort of saying oh well you know I live on my own and this is terrible it's all very it is lonely I you know I have friends I have a very good friend who lost a husband who will spend Christmas on her own this year Um, we we will all talk and we will try and meet on social media over the day but there are sadly there are going to be people that spend Christmas and times like this on their own Mm -hmm. Um, you know no, no, it's just, it's tough. I, I think the the people I know that are in that sort of situation, they're in one bedroom flats or whatever, seem to be kind of vaguely split in the sense that some of them feel that they've already been on their own for so long that they've got through lockdown, which is harder, you know, because they couldn't go out at all really, and that now they're at a stage where you know the, the end is in sight. And then there are other people that say, "Listen, I've been putting up with this for so so long. It's completely different for you." This is what they'd be saying, living, you know, to me because I'm I'm not living alone. Yeah, and you know, it is. It makes me feel. 
I don't know. I'm, I'm nervous either way. I think that's that's what you're talking about on social media is people coming down hard on people for either saying that they're really feeling very vulnerable at the moment and they do desperately need to see people or people saying like, you know, your point of view that you can get through one without it. And I suppose everyone's so defensive at the moment that there isn't much kindness there. Yeah, the thing is, I suppose I, I feel that there's a pressure on us on in normal times to make Christmas into a particular fairy tale and I just um there's a sense in all of this and throughout all of this we've been told that politicians are following the science and quite clearly in this particular instance they are not following the science no and I just um it doesn't make sense to me I'm afraid and I and I, you know the other thing I would say to people that are on their own and then feel that people like me are being a bit pious because we're we've we're not living on our own. Everybody feels vulnerable right now, whether you're with someone, whether you live with someone or not, everyone's found it difficult and dealing with it in their own way. Um, and, you know, we all want to get out onto the other side of it. And I suppose what I just feel is, yes, we have talked about following the science. Let's follow the science. And, and in this instance, politicians absolutely can do something about that. So they say a week is a long time in politics and you've just heard a fraction of that condensed into today's Politically Speaking podcast. I hope we've enlightened and entertained and the next time you hear someone say they're not interested in politics, remember you know a podcast that can help them with that. If you enjoyed this episode of Politically Speaking from Hollywood Magazine and the chat between Liam and I, remember to subscribe and leave a review and tell your friends to subscribe too. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and wherever you listen to podcasts. 